Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Deadwire Municipals. Joining me today are the deputy editor, Seth Brumby, our assistant editor, Marilyn Ty, and our head of research, Greg Clark. So, it's the municipal market and of course there's been some new development with the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Seth, what can you tell us about that? So we try and keep track of various deadlines in the Puerto Rico litigation. There's about 20 different cases at this point, probably even more than that. So one of the best ways to keep track of all this stuff is just to find out when you need to look at the docket. And we'll be looking at it tomorrow because there are supposed to be objections to a rather quiet motion filed last week by the Unsecured Creditor Committee. Now, the Unsecured Creditor Committee helps the debtor uh, administer the case and formulate uh, a plan of reorganization. What's interesting about the Unsecured Creditor Committee is they they asked the judge last Friday if there could be some discovery of the actual debtors to find the root causes of Puerto Rico's financial crisis. And what they want to do specifically is look at all bond transactions starting from January 1st, 2006, all the way up to May 3rd. Uh, 2017, right before the Commonwealth filed for its Title III petition. This is an interesting span of time. Most of the island's general obligation bond issuance was doing at this was was done in that time period. The Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation resolutions were passed by the legislature down there, and subsequently, 17 billion dollars in bonds were issued pursuant to those resolutions. So, a lot of debt came out of the island in that time frame, and. It, I think one of the reasons why it kind of flew under the radar was it's just a normal kind of procedure to look into the debtor's books. But this particular motion touches on what I believe to be a very contentious issue on the island, and that is an apparent conflict of interest between some oversight board members and their dealings with the Government Development Bank which is a subject of this potential scope. There are now three members on the oversight board that have served in the Government Development Bank. Uh, that's uh, the, the three members are Jose Ramon Gonzalez, who served on the GDB in the 1980s. Then there's Christian Sobrino Vega, who's the governor's new designee. He was serving more recently. Um, but most controversial, there's Carlos Garcia, who served on the Government Development Bank from 2009 to 2011. Those years were crucial, particularly for the uh, COFINA bond issuances. Um, in fact, his appointment to the Oversight Board was so controversial that, that in September of last year, um, a congressman, uh, Rafael Tatito Hernandez, demanded that the Oversight Board remove him due to his apparent conflict of interest. So we haven't seen too much yet in the way of objections to the UCC's uh, motion for discovery, but we expect to see them tomorrow. Um, that's pretty much what we're looking for right now. There was some uh, interesting disclosures this week um, pursuant to Rule 2019 or 2019. Um, this is actually a, disco a disclosure rule, so if you are a creditor with economic interests and you are colluding with other creditors or cooperating with them, you need to actually disclose your group's holdings. And this week, uh, the COFINA Senior Bondholder Coalition disclosed their holdings. It's about $2.5 billion worth, no surprise there. But what's interesting is if you actually dig into these 2019s, uh, you will find some fun facts. And fun fact, uh, the largest bondholder in the COFINA Senior Bondholder Coalition is a group called Decagon, which has as many senior bonds as it does subordinated bonds. So you wonder, okay, where exactly their loyalties might lie, supposing that the litigation between the senior and subordinated bondholders really takes off. 
that's something that we'll see a little more of. Uh, Judge Swain wants to see more 2019 disclosures. So far, the COFINA Coalition and the Ad Hoc Bondholder Group are the only ad hoc groups that have actually disclosed their members and their holdings. And we'll look forward to seeing other ones uh, in the coming weeks. And that's it for Puerto Rico for at least this week. Seth, one point of clarification when you mentioned Rafael Tatito Hernandez. He's a representative down the Puerto Rico legislature, just so people didn't confuse that with the United States Congress. Did you call him a congressman? Correct, correct. Yes, it, yes, he was a, a representative in the House down in Puerto Rico. All right. Sounds good. So why don't we move on, uh, Seth, to some other doings in uh, municipalities that have been around with some distress for a while. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's funny uh, to, to pivot off of Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico is such a, an unprecedented restructuring. And the truth is, is that the municipal market does have some traditional frameworks for restructurings, and they normally take years to unfold. And we might see the restructurings finally completed with two deals in particular um, that have long haunted the market, but very quietly because they're not very big deals. And I think when they were probably issued, everybody knew that they'd fall apart anyway. It was just a matter of time. Um, those two deals being the Santa Rosa Bay Bridge Authority down in Florida, which defaulted first back in 2012 after issuing about 100 to maybe $150 million worth. I can't remember the exact amount. A lot of them are cabs, so I don't know what the crude amount is, um, back in 1996. And uh, it sounds like there's going to be a feasibility study for the state maybe to purchase the bridge or some other party to purchase the bridge. That's obviously good news for bondholders in principle, uh, but you don't know how much the bridge is worth. And the feasibility study is going to take a look at revenue, historical revenue, and future projections. Um, it's a good time to do a feasibility study. It seemed to have turned a corner in terms of toll revenue. Uh, they're up year over year. So maybe they're, you know, the state's trying to catch a little momentum there. Uh, but we'll wait to see what the numbers show. We should maybe have a feasibility study as early as October. Do we know who's paying for the feasibility study? No. no? Okay. <laughs> um, I doubt it's going to be bondholders because they get their money from the bridge. And if I were to pick a time to do a feasibility study when gas prices are low mm -hmm. would be it because that's when people drive the most. Yeah, yeah. I think that the, the feasibility study there, you know, the, the guys who did the feasibility study originally back in, in 1996 – uh, it, it, I guess what's that old saying, Greg? You never met a feasibility study that didn't say do the project. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this one back in the '90s said, "Sure, build a toll bridge in between two free bridges, and we'll see how revenue goes." But, um, but they're moving forward with that, and we'll, we'll see what happens. That one's been a long time in coming. The other one is the uh, the Lombard Public Facilities Corporation, just outside of Chicago. Um, you know, this is uh, this is a complicated deal. And a couple of years ago, the, the city is supposed to essentially give a portion of its tax revenue to service some of the bonds associated with a convention center built with financing issued by the Lombard Public F uh, Facilities Corporation. But it sounds like, obviously, the, the, the city hasn't really made good on that pledge. And earlier this week, there was a filing on electronic municipal market access, which is essentially the clearinghouse for the municipal market that Lombard will likely file for Chapter 11 as soon as maybe Friday and hopes to restructure the debt probably by December. But we'll see how quickly those prepackaged agreements go. And just a note, Seth, uh, updated reporting straight off the presses. It could be even be today, but I guess we'll know that soon enough as far as with Lombard. 
But why don't we switch gears to a topic we haven't talked about in a while? Uh, hospitals. Mary Ellen. Thanks, Paul. We recently published our Hospital Watch. It's a wide survey of hospitals, and we tend to focus on income declines, stepwire munis, um, but also whether income increased, and then the same thing with revenue. This survey, operating income declined, losses grew, or the hospitals swung to losses in 37 of the 64 hospitals we looked at, there was generally difficulties limiting expense growth at the hospitals. So what it sounds like is even though they're able to grow their revenue pie, their expenses are increasing too, which keep which is keeping net income low in most of the hospitals that we that we've surveyed, or at least that are under coverage. Right, right. The expenses are growing at a faster rate than they've been able to grow income so far. Any winners in the in the pack? There seem to be um, probably not as many as the losers, uh, regrettably. Yeah, the Oklahoma Kingfisher Regional Hospital, their operating margin was up, along with Florida's Parish Medical Center project. Both of those two were the big winners we listed, but it's it's a pretty extensive report if you have a debt wire subscription. Yeah, healthcare is one of those sectors that who knows what's going to happen with it, um, with the uh, skinny repeal, light repeal and replace, whatever they're calling it now. I've but, lost track. Yeah. That, and uh, most hospitals that have issued bonds report they're probably the only sector of the muni market that by and large, reports quarterly financials, and there's a good reason for that. The, the uh, financial operations can be very volatile. Yeah, but much like if you've been listening to our podcast in the past, we've talked about Puerto Rico's lack of consistency in reporting. The hospitals often can fall prey to that same lack of consistency between different hospitals or even the same hospital year over year. Yeah, we'd all benefit from a little more standardization in the municipal market. Mary Ellen, let's switch gears here and, and move to, to trading. Anything of note been happening over the last week as far as trading activity? Yeah, Paul, there were a couple interesting trades, one of which was the American Dream Project. We've talked about this a few times. It's a mall out in the Meadowlands in New Jersey that has been struggling to be completed for years, uh, but they got a big financing done earlier this year, and the bonds are up. 2% over the last four weeks. So that's pretty exciting for the those bondholders. Um, a maybe more exciting move is in the Illinois general obligation-backed pension funding bonds. Um, they are up 2.8% in the last week, uh, which would be based on probably Illinois' lack of a downgrade. If you want to talk about that at all, I, Greg, I think that you were looking into Illinois, right? Yes, I was actually. Uh, after the budget was passed, all of the rating agencies, each of the three that, that rate Illinois, decided not to take any negative rating action. Uh, this was following a period, as you may remember, in which they were uh, getting to be pretty uh, outspoken about the possibility of rating downgrades to below investment grade. To give you an idea, on July 5th, right after, or dur during this, the, the end stages of when the budget was adopted, Moody said that their BAA3 rating on Illinois was under review for possible downgrade. Uh, about two weeks later, on the 20th, they confirmed the BAA3 rating 
but gave the state a negative outlook. In effect, that's a, that's a minor uptick in the whole credit picture, according to Moody's. Uh, Standard & Poor's lowered the rating on June 1st to triple B minus from triple B, and they put the rating on Credit Watch with negative implications. That usually means something bad is going to happen. But on the 12th of July, they affirmed the triple B and gave it a stable outlook, which is a little bit surprising to me. Fitch lowered the rating on February 1st on, on Illinois GOs to triple B from triple B plus. On July 3rd, they said, quote, Illinois is making some progress on its budget impasse. And on July 17th, they affirmed the rating at triple B with a negative outlook. It's, I think, a bit of a stretch to think that Illinois is out of the woods. The, uh, the, to give you an idea, the state legislature is, today was in the second day of a special session to address school funding. And the state, uh, schools in the state may not, schools throughout the state may not open on time unless, unless a school funding bill is passed. The governor wants to amend the bill to remove monies for Chicago Public Schools pension funding, which would then provide greater allocations to schools throughout the state. In other words, the money wouldn't be there for Chicago schools, it would be there for other schools throughout the state. And today the, the, the legislatures, the legislator has only met for a few minutes. And it seems that any, any veto by the governor or the state school funding bill could be overridden the same way the, the budget was enacted over his veto. So there, there's a lot to, be, to watch in Illinois for the foreseeable future. Well, according to the muni market, that's, those are mere details. Uh, you know, if, if you look at the trading, you know, it seems like the muni market is pretty sanguine about the the lack of a downgrade. I mean, uh, all those 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 th that that time frame that you described there with the ratings, those those are coincident with an almost ten percent increase in prices over the past four weeks, and it's three percent over the past fifty-two weeks. So, um, you know, and Illinois bondholders are enjoying a nice rally here. Uh, I don't know if there might be any profit taking, but I, I think certainly people got in um, at the bottom. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think when when it was clear the ratings were not going to go below investment grade, which would have been a first, as, as we've talked about before, then I, I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief, and it took a lot of the pressure off off of the prices. Yeah. And Greg, what's going on in Connecticut? Well, it's as if Connecticut said to Illinois, you think you're the only state that can operate without a budget? Watch this. Of course, Connecticut's, Connecticut is only about a month into its operating without a budget. Illinois, as we know, was, was two years. Uh, the governor said earlier this week, Governor Daniel Malloy, who's a Democrat, said that the state, quote, may go into the fall without a budget for the fiscal year that began on July 1st. And a lot of the legislators will be on vacation in August, so I, I guess that's pretty much I, it, with all due respect to the governor, it seems like that was probably a pretty easy call. But what's interesting is that the governor, is, who, as I mentioned, is a Democrat, has a legislature that's controlled by the Democrats. They have a margin of 79-72 in the House of Representatives, and although there's a tie with Republicans 18-18 to 18 in the Senate, the tie in the Senate, any tie vote in the Senate can be broken by the lieutenant governor, who, as you might guess, is also a Democrat. So Democrats want to raise the sales tax from 6.35% to 6.99%. 6 
both Republicans and the governor oppose that. Right now, the, the state's operating under a current temporary budget, which was enacted by the governor's, under the governor's executive order, and towns and cities in the state are moving to cut spending and take other steps because they're, they're afraid that there's going to be a reduction in, in state aid. The state's ratings right now are, all have stable outlooks. That's, that's A1 from Moody's, A-plus from Standard & Poor's, and A-plus from Fitch. So there's a bit more to happen there, and I think that's a situation, depending on how the budget comes out, where the rating agencies could go to a negative outlook uh, before they go to a rating downgrade. Again, assuming that the budget didn't come out the way they wanted it to, and, and that's just, uh, just food for thought. All right, then. I think that about covers it for this week's edition of the Media Lowdown. Thanks, everyone, for listening in, and look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.